Let's pray. God, this morning, first, before we pray specifically for the next few minutes, or how we spend the next few minutes, I want to pray for two different people, really, uh, one's a person and one's a, a context or a group of people, a church. I want to pray first for our mayor, and uh, I want to lift up Steve and his family. I want to pray for uh, Steve's heart. Uh, that first and foremost, it is fueled by worship and that that is uh, connected to his marriage, to his parenting, to his job, um, and to his role as our mayor. Lord, I pray that you would guard his heart and his mind from what seems like would be very um, available, would be influences that are outside of you. And I pray that you would guard his mind from those influences that aren't true, that aren't godly, that aren't right. Pray that he would have a wisdom that's beyond him because he is walking in your ways and enjoying your son and that he is steeped in your word and he is walking intimately, uh, tangibly with the people. Lord, I pray that if he should move in a way that's outside of your will and your best for him and for this community. I pray that you would check that in him, that he would hear counsel from others if need be, um, that the Holy Spirit would convict, and that you would guide him uh, as a mayor of our community to walk in a way that would bring glory to you and your son. Lord, second this morning, I want to pray for another pastor and his family and for the church body the pastors, I want to pray for Terry Blankenship and for First Baptist Church, Greenville. Lord, I want to pray first for Terry and his worship as a, first of all, that he is enjoying you. I just know how easy it could be for this to just become a job, for him to, um, to just give a speech on Sunday morning. Um, for him to find excuses um, so easily we can end up doing as pastors, we can end up doing the work of deacons. So I pray really for that church as a whole, that deacons would deacon well, and that that would free Terry up to pray, to preach, to seek your face, and to lead your people. Lord, too, just knowing that he is going that alone as a lone pastor and lone elder, pray for an extra measure of protection on him and around him for the sake of your people at First Baptist Church, Greenville. Lord, ultimately, we want your glory. We want your, we want your glory to be on display. We want your kingdom to be advanced. We want your son to be savored and enjoyed in and through that ministry. Whatever role that we may have, Maybe it's just praying for them this morning. Maybe we're working next to a brother or sister from that church so we can encourage them to be faithful and true, to worship newly. Just pray that we'll be faithful to do that, whatever you call us to. Lord, these next few minutes that we spend together, pray for an attentiveness that's beyond any one of us. I pray for a clarity that I know I don't have. Pray for an insight into your ways, into your word, into your work that will leave us changed and leave us quickened and attentive in this Christmas season. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we have it available in our language. We're thankful that we have the Holy Spirit to bring us into all understanding. We thank you for those things in advance pray that you'll be enjoyed in these next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. This is the fourth installment in our Advent series this month. <clears throat> and this week and next week will both come from Isaiah 9, at least as home base. I really don't have any introduction for you this morning except 
to let you know what the title of the message is, At Peace with God. But it's really about so much more than just being at peace with God. I will tell you, too, that this sermon, I felt like it should be really easy and straightforward, but it's a little bit complicated because there are four different contexts we're working with in the next few minutes. We're working with, first of all, Isaiah's context. And then in Isaiah 9, Isaiah is writing about something that's going to happen later. So we're dealing with the context that will happen. You'll understand what I'm talking about. Within years later, just decades, years and decades later. And then we're dealing with the third context of where this prophecy is ultimately going to be fulfilled in Christ's arrival and incarnation. And then we're dealing with our context. So I'm, trying, I'm going to try and help you sort out what context we're going to speak to in what section. Try not to make it complicated. I'm going to try and make it clear, but I want to let you know that there are four different contexts at work. Let me read our passage in total, and then we're going to climb in sort of unpacking the luggage verse by verse. Chapter 9 of Isaiah. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want to unpack this verse by verse beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The tenses in this six verses are tricky. Isaiah uses past tense words while speaking of something not yet happening. He uses them as if he is so sure that God is going to fulfill what he's promised that he can use them as past tense words. I'm going to try and help you make sense of what is past tense, what is present tense, what's coming, and where it all fits together. First, let's start with the phrase, her who was in anguish. This phrase is regarding Israel and Judah. By this point, Israel and Judah are two separate things. They're all part of God's people, but they've separated. And as a whole, Israel and Judah have not been faithful. I found a really nice passage that summarizes how Israel and Judah have been in Judges 2. Just listen. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. If you spent time in your Old Testaments, you know the story. After the Exodus, they are led through the wilderness and led eventually into the promised land through the conquest. And then is the time of the judges and then the time of the kings. First and second Kings, first and second Samuel, first and second Chronicles. Paint the picture that this passage here in Judges chapter two, verses eleven and twelve is consistent. This people has been un, have been unfaithful. They've proven that it's indeed a scandal that God has chosen them as their people, as his people. And they are about to experience some severe gloom. 
other words in this passage, they are about to experience some severe anguish. They're about to experience the third word that's just a heartbreaking word when you think about who's meeting it out, contempt from the living God, from the God that called them, from the God who formed them. They are about to experience severe gloom. Though Isaiah speaks about this as past tense, Israel and Judah are about to experience some of the most severe darkness and difficulty and gloom that they have ever experienced when the Assyrians invade their land. The Assyrians under two different kings, Sargon II and then Sennacherib, are going to have their way with Israel and ultimately Judah. They will, in fact, take Israel, and they will take the capital of Israel, Samaria, and then they will lay siege to Jerusalem. And it's going to be brutal. Isaiah talks about it like it's already happened. It hadn't happened yet, but it's brewing. It's within years. In fact, there's some thought that the invasion has already started in the northern territories. Isaiah wrote these words around 735 B.C., 701 The army of the Assyrians is surrounding Jerusalem, laying siege to Jerusalem. I found a passage that nicely captured the character of this time. I want to develop the darkness for a moment. I want you to listen to this passage in 2 Kings. Just listen. You can jot down the passage if you'd like to go look at it later. But listen to this passage, 2 Kings chapter 18. Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah said to the Rabshakeh. Now, the Rabshakeh are the cupbearers for Sennacherib, for the Assyrian king. The Rabshakehs are like the worst hecklers, the most wicked and vile hecklers you could possibly ever imagine. The Rabshakeh, their name even sounds like what they are. The Rabshakeh are bad news. And the Rabshakeh have shown up in the siege, and they're calling out, to Jerusalem and speaking to Eliakim. Eliakim says to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Don't speak to us in the language of Judah, i.e. Hebrew, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. The Rabshakeh are calling out publicly that they're going to go down, that Hezekiah is lying to them that the God of Judah, the God of Israel, is no God at all. And Eliakim is saying, please don't say this in Hebrew because I don't want the guys on the wall to hear what you're saying. And here's what the Rabshakeh say. Man, they're bad news. Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine? That's a vile image, but I'm going to tell you what, that's the image of siege. That's what happens when a city is surrounded by the enemy and it becomes a war of attrition. You can't get any water, you can't get any food, and you starve to death or you die of dehydration. And this imagery here is dark and gloomy and they're experiencing the contempt of God. Let's develop the story a little more. And the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This would be Sennacherib. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hand of the the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat instead of dung and urine. Each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. So much promise. And don't listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you 
by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered this, his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? The Assyrians are kicking behind and taking names right now all over this land. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim, <laughs> Hina, Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Samaria has already been taken by this point, and Israel. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, came to Hezekiah, the king of Judah at this point, in Jerusalem, with his clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. And here the king of Judah, listen to how he responds. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary and the senior priest covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be, listen to the word he chose. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. It may be that God will do this, but there is no doubt this is a gloomy hour. There is no doubt this is a dark time. There is no doubt that they are experiencing anguish and the contempt of a white-hot, holy, just God. I'm going to shift context on you. Let me connect to your context, if I might. In some ways, the condition of Israel... Not only what they've done, but what's in store for them is a nice picture of our lives before Christ. And it's a nice picture of our lives apart from Christ. Gloom, anguish, contempt from our Creator. I was going to leave it at that, and I thought <clears throat> we could leave it at that and move on and realize that that's often what we do. We like to put it in nice, tidy boxes, before Christ and then after Christ, like a B.C. and A.D. in our own lives, where we can nicely say before Christ things were bad, and after Christ things are just great. And I realize in the big sense, before Christ, before we're reconciled with our Creator, yes, it's gloom, darkness, anguish, and contempt. But also realize after Christ, you still experience a lot of those things from time to time. I was thinking about the kids in this context. The kids during this time, 700-something B.C. The kids are referred to here in this passage. In verse 3 of that passage, verse 3 of, where was I? Back in Isaiah No, that's not where I am. This imagery of the children in verse 3 of some book in our Bible. <laughs> this imagery nicely illustrates where the children have so little strength that they can even continue the birthing process. And the moms that are carrying have so little strength to deliver these children. I thought about the children, and I thought about the children born during this time. They didn't do anything wrong. And yet here they are experiencing gloom, anguish, and the contempt of God. And I thought about how many of us, though we are, we could say A.D., we're walking with Christ now, we've found him, we've come in a relationship with him through faith in Christ, yet there are times where we experience gloom, anguish, and the contempt of God because of someone else's sin. We've inherited the consequences of someone else's sin. And I wish it were that tidy that after Christ, everything just gets all cleaned up. But the problem is, sometimes we're stuck in the mire of others' sin. 
I want you to keep those images in view of the darkness and the contempt and the gloom before Christ. Keep those images in view of the darkness and contempt and anguish even after Christ at times. When you walk in the mess of someone else's sin, I want you to keep those images in view as we continue with this passage in Isaiah. This sweet word, but, I love when but shows up, but God's message to and through Isaiah is a message of good news. Those words gloom and anguish and contempt are there, no doubt, but this message here that Isaiah is sharing with his people who are about to go through the gloom and the anguish and contempt is a message of good news. This passage could be translated, but to the land for which there is now distress and there's gonna be plenty more, There will not always be darkness. There will not always be darkness. Here he says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. A message of good news in a context of real darkness. For a new hope for this undeserving people will come from Galilee of the nations. I've read that this passage before, but I've never really connected to that phrase, that term, Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the nations is Galilee is where Christ spent about 30 years of his earthly existence. Nazareth, Capernaum, walking the streets, the roads, the villages of Galilee. And though Galilee isn't a prominent region, the hope of the nations will come from her. From Galilee of the nations. Continue on in verse 2 of Isaiah 9. And again, reminding you, we're in past tense because Isaiah is so confident about what's going to unfold. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. He's speaking about this as past tense, but what he's speaking of is going to happen 700-something years later. 700-something years later, from Galilee of the nations will come the hope for the nations. And the people who didn't listen and were unfaithful before, they're going to see a great light. The people who were given the best A promised land flowing with milk and honey. It sounds a lot like a garden given to Adam and Eve. Squandered what they were given. And those people rightfully dwell in the land of deep darkness. But these people will see a great light when Christ shows up. Ultimately, connecting our context to this. Ultimately, the darkness that they're talking about The darkness that Isaiah is speaking of is the darkness that the Assyrians and the Babylonians will bring. But our darkness that this is connecting to is the darkness, is the picture of our plight with sin and misery. The darkness that we all carry and have to reckon with of sin and misery in this life. But then the light shined and shines for us. Verse 3 You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The nation, instead of being destroyed, will rather be multiplied. First of all, that's a scandal. The first scandal of the passage anyway. From Galilee of the nations will come one who will multiply the nation. From deep and profound darkness and gloom and anguish and contempt, there will come joy and gladness. And this joy and gladness is threefold, and it's presented in the next few passages. The key for what each of those are is the word four. There are three fours, and we're going to look at each of the three, beginning in verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Two things at work here. First of all, I want to show you what happens, and then I'm going to show you the nature of what happens. What happens first, what God is promising, is that the yoke, the staff, and the rod of the oppressors will be broken. And then the nature of that work 
is connected to what he's talking about here on the day of Midian. He's speaking about Gideon in Judges chapter 6 and 7. If you know the story of Gideon, you know that Isaiah is leaning in the direction of even yet another scandal. He's speaking to a people who are experiencing gloom, anguish, and contempt, and they're going to experience a lot more of it, and he's promising them that a great light is going to shine on them, hope is going to come to them, and it's going to be a lot like it did with Gideon and the people through Gideon. If you know that story, you know that that's a story of scandal. Gideon's victory over the Midianites, one passage says that they were numbered like locusts in their abundance, and their camels were without number. And God first starts with 22,000 and says, no, that's too many. He says, hone it down to 10,000 and said, no, that's too many Israelites. They come against these hundreds of thousands of Midianites. Let's see who laps the water and let's go with those 300. So then God, with only 300 men, with only 300 trumpets, with only 300 jars, with 300 torches, sent the Midianites into complete disarray and defeat. You have to enjoy his design right off the bat that he goes about early on taking the unlikely and the foolish to confound and defeat the wise. And Gideon had a front row seat to his own ineptitude and a front row seat to how ridiculous it would be for 300 to take on this number. He knew the battle went to the Lord. The great picture of the nature of what's being communicated here through Isaiah. The hope for Israel is going to come through a child. A child. And the rod and the staff and the yoke would be broken because of him. The rod for us, the staff for us, the yoke for us, the rod on our backs is the burden of sin and corruption, of rebellion against and departure from our creator, and of the heartbreaking consequences of that departure. And yet in this light that would come, there will be joy in having those things broken and the burden lifted. So I was thinking about the burden lifted and the joy in that. I thought about one of my favorite reads. It's John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. This is the old-fashioned version here, but I want to read an excerpt. It's rich. Now, I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called Salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burden Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. The burden, the yoke, staff, the rod. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked therefore and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with, Peace be to thee. So the first said to him, Thy sins be forgiven thee. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with change of raiment. The third also set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bade him look on as he ran, and that he should give it at the celestial gate. So they went their way, and then Christian gave three leaps for joy. Three leaps for joy. And went on singing, Thus far I did come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. 
What a place is this. Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall from off my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross. Blessed sepulcher. Blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. And this joy of a lightened burden, this deliverance for us from the burden of sin is quite a feat and it's something that we couldn't do. Notice that verb belongs to the Lord. He is the mover behind have broken. We couldn't deal with this burden ourselves. It's his work, and it's a mighty one, in fact. So mighty that we could never win it any more than Gideon could have defeated the Midianites on his own. Any more than Israel and Judah could defeat the Assyrians and the Babylonians on their own. And then the second joy of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. I thought about an illustration that would acquaint you with this. I'll tell you, a soldier or a Marine is no good without his boots. A soldier or a Marine is no good without his camis or his UDTs. You lose those, you lose your boots. It doesn't matter if you have the baddest weapon systems in all the land. Without boots and clothing, you are impotent. It would be like one of those Indy 500 race cars sitting on the tarmac with four flat tires. Looking all bad. But with no boots and no clothing, all show and no go. I love this image. It makes me think of what Christ did through the cross. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in it through the cross. He made their weapons, those who come against us, worthless and impotent. And here's the third joy of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The climax of this passage, this is the greatest news for those who are in gloom who are experiencing contempt for those who are in anguish. Here's the greatest news of the passage. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Here's how this plays out. God's people are rejoicing first because God has broken the yoke of the burden the the yoke of the burden of the oppression of the Assyrians, of the Babylonians. And the yoke is removed because the weapons and the garments and even the shoes of the enemy are destroyed. And ultimately, the reason for those first two joys is all embedded within the third. The reason for these blessings is that a child is born. A child. I read that and I wanted to read that with a new set of eyes. I read child and I thought like 300 pots, like 300 torches, like 300 trumpets and like 300 water lapping dudes defeating the Midianites that number like locusts. And deliverance is gonna come through a child. Thursday, the kids finished school and for a treat, we took them to see The Hobbit. For those of you who've seen The Hobbit, I wonder if you remember this. This isn't a, uh, I'm I'm not going to mess up the movie for anybody, so this isn't like a plot ruiner or anything. It was a moment in the movie that I almost amened out loud in the theater. In fact, I turned my phone on and I'm trying to capture what was exactly said and hoping that I don't get kicked out for turning my phone on. But here's what happens in The Hobbit at this moment, if you go see it. Gandalf and Galandriel are talking. Galandriel is the elf queen. I heard Evan huff, so maybe I said somebody's name wrong. Well, we'll, you just give me a break. (laughs) Gandalf is the wizard. Gandalf and Galandriel 
are talking. Galandriel is talking to him about his team. He's got a team of dwarves. And now these are no ordinary dwarves. These dudes are like dwarf warriors. In fact, at the beginning of the movie, they sing together. And I wanted to join in singing with them. I want like a CD of dwarf music. It was so awesome. Manly. Wow. So the elf queen asks Gandalf, why the halfling? He's speaking of the hobbit. Why pick the halfling for your team? And Gandalf responds, Saruman believes it's only great power. This was another one of the wizards. Saruman believes it's only great power that can hold evil in check. But that's not what I have found. I'm not emotional about the movie. I'm emotional about thinking about Jesus like this. I found it's the small, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. Why Bilbo Baggins? That's because I'm afraid, and he gives me courage. I thought about that little interchange, and I thought about what that represented, and thought about how God shines light in the most unlikely of ways through a dude like Gideon and 300 jokers. And I thought about here, the greatest light that the world will ever know comes as a child from Galilee. Galilee of the nations? It'd be like saying Quinlan of the nations. Greenville of the nations. What? From Galilee of the nations. But what you have to know, this is no ordinary child. Man, just a few weeks ago, we considered how Adam and Eve anticipated this child early on. Why wouldn't they expect that God would give them a remedy for their problem right off the bat? You know, in Genesis chapter chapter 3, the sin happens, the fall, the consequences are meted out. God gives the message of hope in the Proto-Euangelion. You remember that? And after God gives that message of hope, he meets out judgment for Eve and then Adam and then the first thing Adam does, he say, turns to Eve. Previously, I named you woman. Sounds very impersonal. But I'm going to rename you right now, and I'm going to name you Eve, because you're going to be the mother of life. I'm hoping that God's going to give us an answer to our problem in you and through you, Eve. So I'm going to call you Eve from now on. And in the first few verses of chapter 4, in our Bibles, translate Eve has a baby and is like, wow, look at that. With the help of the Lord, I've gotten myself a man-child. Paraphrase of what most of our versions say. But the Hebrew directly says, I have gotten the God-man. I've gotten the God-man. I got the answer to get us back in the garden. God told us it was going to be my offspring they were going to crush the head of the serpent and put us back in fellowship and relationship with him. So maybe this is him. Well, we know the rest of the story. We know it's Cain. Turns out it's not Cain and it's not Abel. But Seth hoped for him. He named his son Enosh, the son of man. Lamech hoped for him a few generations later in Noah. He said of Noah, maybe this one will save us from our toil. Maybe this is the one to get us back in the garden. Maybe this will be the offspring of Eve that we've ached for. How bad did humanity need the offspring of Eve to crush the head of the serpent? How bad did they ache for it? How bad does Israel need now a child, a son, specifically the son who would crush the head of the serpent? And finally, this happens when Christ shows up. Galatians 4.4 says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. In the fullness of time happened, and God showed up, and this answer to this age-old problem was born. And the passage here, according to verse 2, says it's like light incarnate showed up. It's like light incarnate. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. 
This word, light, would be a great way to summarize Christ's birth, life, preaching, teaching, miracles, cross, resurrection, and ascension. One word that would nicely capture it all is the word light. Something I enjoyed, too, as I studied this passage, is Brad mentioned this last week, that when God the Son showed up, he was named Emmanuel, God with us. Just two chapters earlier in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Brad mentioned this last week, that it's not only God with us, but it's God for us. These two passages, or this passage here in verse 6, where these two references, it says, for to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. That to us, that verb there means contextually, and is translated in other places, for us. I was in my study, and I discovered that, and I was like, man, it was almost like Brad and I were in cahoots. And I thought, no, we're not in cahoots. It's the spirit that's in cahoots with the truth. And our Bibles speak to it cover to cover. He's with us. And he's for us. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Because he's to be a king, this child. And his name shall be called four rich names. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father. Prince of Peace. This child is to be a king with great names. And these names are to give us so much hope. They were to give these people hope as they waited 700-something years for this light to show up in Bethlehem. And it should be a hope to us, these names, as we look back at what happened 2,000 years ago. With these four names, I'm going to move right into our context. We don't have to work really hard to imagine what a hope it would have been for the, the Israelites in the time of the Assyrian invasion and the Babylonian exile. So I'm not going to spend any time there. I'm going to jump right to our context with these four names. Each of these four names has two parts, two words for each of the four names. And one of the names has to, or one part of the name has to do with something divine and the other earthly. The first name, wonderful counselor, directly from the Hebrew, that word wonderful is not an adjective. Directly from the Hebrew, the divine word is the word wonder. This could be translated, and very appropriately should be translated, wonder of a counselor. A wonder of a counselor will come in this child. The use of this word elsewhere as well as here leads us to consider that the child is beyond just extraordinary, beyond just wonderful. He is in fact a wonder himself, for he is God himself. The word is pointing to his deity. The child himself is a wonder, and it should make us wonder perpetually that God would stoop to show up in the flesh. May we never just accept it. And then the counselor, his counsel needs no additional counsel. You know, most kings, all kings, I guess, if they're to serve wisely, they're going to need a court where they receive counsel. Jesus doesn't need that. He needs counsel from no one, for he is himself counselor, a wonder of a counselor. The second name in Hebrew is El Gibor. You hear that word El and you might think of El Shaddai or Elohim. El means God. Gabor means hero. A God of a hero. A hero whose chief characteristic is that he is God. That's what this child will be. A wonder of a counselor and a God of a hero. 
So he who is born a hero God is able to save those who trust in him. The third name given him is everlasting father. The divine is the everlasting. It means eternal. This phrase, this title is not to be confused with the name for the God the Father part of the Trinity. This is speaking to the character of how Christ will serve. In John chapter 10, he identifies himself as the good shepherd. That's what's being communicated here. A great king was often referred to as their father. This is our father. That's how he's going to serve as eternal father, as eternal shepherd. And the fourth thing is prince of peace. The divine here is not prince, for they're earthly princes. The divine here is peace. Right off the bat, you got to know there's a point in that, just knowing that true peace is not something that we can muster. It's got to come from somewhere else. True peace is not something that we can deliver or conjure up. It's something indeed divine. This child, this son, this wonder, this hero, this eternal king will be and is for us the prince of peace. He won it by paying for it on our cross. He earned that title. He earned the peace that he owns. And he offers it, and he's the only place you can get it. He's the prince of peace, the only source of peace. I thought about peace this week as something like Brad described that the manger can be. Just sort of accepted And what a travesty it will be to accept the manger, to accept the incarnation, to accept peace and not really think about and not really enjoy what that means. And just accept peace like it's a given. Can treat peace almost like it's even a little bit tired. As I studied this word, the Hebrew word for, poli- for peace is the word shalom. I found as I studied this word shalom that it means so much more than peace. It means wholeness. It means completeness. I thought, man, I like that word a lot better than just peace alone because it identifies the reality that when we come back into fellowship with our creator, that we become truly whole. We become truly complete we become truly human. We sing about peace this time of year, but do we really understand what it is or what it cost? Turn to Colossians chapter 1. It's the last passage I want you to look at this morning. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Think of those words that went with divinity. Wonder. God. Eternal. Peace. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I want that to be central these next few minutes that we spend together. We're going to take the supper together, and that's what the supper is, weekly a reminder of what peace costs A weekly reminder of the only place where you can find it. The only table where you can dine on it. Through Christ's work, we are reconciled with our creator. We become whole. 
we become complete. This peace was hard won. As we take the supper here in these next few minutes, I want us to consider that. Let's distribute the elements. The uh, beginning of this, toward the beginning of this sermon, I uh, feebly tried to develop this picture of darkness. The darkness that we experienced before Christ and then the darkness that many of us experience after Christ that's a result of others' uh, sin. And I was thinking um, that I didn't, didn't share this before. Sort of like Daniel. Like Daniel in the Bible. Not my son Daniel or any other Daniels. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are the Babylonian names. They had Jewish names. But they were young boys. They didn't do what Israel did to put them in that situation. But yet they found themselves neck deep in someone else's darkness. Or the consequences of what someone else did. But it became their very own darkness. And elders pray with people. I pray with people. Uh, deacons spend time with people. Sh small group shepherds spend time with people. Family members. Family shepherds spend time with your own family members. Sometimes where you're dealing with like a very dark and profound darkness. Maybe it's one you brought on yourself or maybe it's one that's consequences of some, someone else's sin. But in both situations, the true light is this child. The only light is this child. If we can get past a feeble, scatterbrained preacher or we can get past distractions this morning, if we can get past those things and just consider for a moment that whatever your darkness, that is the only answer. He is wonder of a counselor. He is father of eternity. He is prince of peace. He is hero God. He alone. And that might seem trite and seem like, well, that's kind of small and not real encouraging. Put yourself in their shoes 700 years before Christ showed up. How easy would it have been for them to dismiss Isaiah's words? Assyrians are invading. I'm about at the point where I'm going to drink my own urine or eat my own dung. I'm at the point where I'm trying to decide, am I going to cook my child or cook my arm to feed my child. I'm at the point where I'm tearing my own clothing, thinking, man, we're going to die. And that's supposed to be an encouragement. A child's going to be born. What we have that they didn't have is their promise wasn't fulfilled for 700 years. We've been swimming in our promise for 2,000. Imagine how they would feel if they were sitting in here in this sanctuary realizing how easily we get stuck in our darkness. Saying, man, do you know what you have? It was promised to me when we were surrounded by the Assyrians. And it provided me some comfort, not much. But man, you've had him for 2,000 years? That's the purpose of this yearly season of enjoying and celebrating Christ's birth. That's the purpose of weekly enjoying our supper so we can be stirred up by way of reminder of what ultimate reality and ultimate truth is. That we have all those things in Christ. It's not trite. It's going to seem that way. Sort of like Gideon, get 300 dudes, 300 pots, 300 trumpets, 300 torches. Israel, to you a child is born. Crosspoint Fellowship to us Christ was born 2,000 years ago and he did a work we couldn't do he earned a peace we could never achieve and now he is seated and reigning and ruling and in session at the right hand of the Father man we were once enemies of God and now not only are we friends but we're family Let's take this meal with our family. Take and eat.
take and drink. C.S. Lewis said, God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it's not there. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. Let me pray and we'll continue on in song. God, we are so thankful that we have this yearly, weekly reminder of what we have in Christ. God, we are so thankful that unto us a child has been born. Not only was he born, but he lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, fulfilling the law. And he paid a price that we couldn't pay. And now he is risen and seated and in session and we enjoy all those realities right now. Whatever sliver of hope this must have been for Israel 700 years before Christ showed up, I pray that it is a mountain of hope for us now as we see the whole picture. We see what Christ achieved. We see the burden, the staff, the rod, the yoke that's been broken. We see the boots of our enemy burning. Lord, I fear this time of year can be the most distracting time of year for these sort of truths. And Lord, I pray that this will be the time of year where they are the most vivid and the most directing and the most hope-fueling. I pray for those who are dealing with a darkness that's of their own making or dealing with a darkness that someone else made for them. That all can find hope in this light that's shown in Bethlehem, the light of the Galilee of the nations. Our living light that's seated next to you right now. We love you, Lord. We turn the rest of this time over to you and pray that this will be a sweet offering and aroma to you. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Share a passage with you before we go. Matthew chapter 4. <coughs> chapter 4, Matthew. It's going to be early on in the ministry. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. That's the same Galilee of the nations we talked about this morning. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. I I hope your ears perk up when you hear something like that. The gospel writer didn't have to be so specific, but he's read Isaiah. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those, who's, for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he starts calling his disciples and then he starts healing people and then he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. He starts his ministry. The light switch was flipped on. Big old, divine, awesome, God-flipping light switch. Man, you got to enjoy that. you got to enjoy, too, that this region, Naphtali and Zebulun, because of what Christ did, became like a new region. It became Galilee of the Nations. Naphtali and Zebulun was the place where the Assyrian invaders first entered through the, fer- through the Fertile Crescent. And they laid waste to it. So I guarantee this room is full of people that have your version of Naphtali and Zebulun that through the work of Christ can be turned and changed into the Galilee of the nations. 
You see that? You see green grass in that? That same region. That's what Christ does. This child. Man, I pray that for you right now. Let me pray for you. I'm going to send you out with a benediction. Y'all stand, please. Lord, I pray for this people. I pray for rich, green pastures. For those who are enjoying Christ. I pray that those who have enough tally are Zebulun, a dark, difficult, ravaged place. That this child and the hope and the work and the life and the cross and the resurrection will invade that dark, difficult place and bring light. Lord, I pray for a real engagement in this Prince of Peace and enjoyment of what he earned and achieved for us. Lord, I pray that this people will stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and that we'll walk in it and find rest for our souls. Praying this in Jesus' name, amen. Y'all have a great week and a great Christmas.